0: Alright, tonight I'm excited because we're going to tackle one of the biggest stories in the life of Jesus. We're going to tackle the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm going to mix things up a little bit. I'm, before we read the text, I'm going to make a few comments about the story, and then we'll dive into the story. We are going to read this one in, in all of its appearances in the Gospels in just a moment. But I want to give some context first for when this occurred. I want you to think uh, in terms of chronology for a moment. Where in the ministry of Jesus did this occur? What happened immediately before it? What happened uh, immediately after it? What is being set up by this particular event? But I want to start with what happened before it. In other words, the feeding of the 5,000 happened after what? Well, the first thing you may notice, um, and let me just go ahead and tell you, this um, event does occur or is recorded in all four of our Gospels. But particularly if you were to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place after an exhaustive and exciting evangelistic campaign. Jesus uh, commissioned his 12 apostles to go out into the Galilean territory and to share the good news. And they're sent out on this campaign, and, and, and they spend uh, time going from town to town sharing the good news, and then they're just returning from that effort when Jesus, when this miracle, just before this miracle happens. And it's upon their return, Mark, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 31, he specifically indicates that this campaign that they were involved on was the catalyst for him to take his apostles on a retreat. See, you didn't know this, but we're not the first ones to do retreats. Jesus was doing retreats before you and I. You'll, you'll see Mark says, uh, come away by yourselves and, and rest a while. He invites them to retreat from the hecticness of the work they've been doing. They're going to go off by themselves and they're going to rest. I mean, legitimately, that's what he's uh, calling for here. So this, this, this miracle is going to occur immediately after this campaign that he sent the apostles on. But there's another catalyst for it as well. Because the other thing, and I should be clicking along here, the other thing this occurs after is the unexpected and emotional loss of John the Baptist. (laughs) Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, they all tell us about John's death shortly before this miracle. In fact, Matthew specifically indicates that this was the catalyst for their retreat. In Matthew chapter 14 verse 13 he says now now when Jesus heard this when he heard about John's death he withdrew from where he was at so the death of John the death of John in uh, thinking in terms of Jesus's relationship with John not just his his family relationship with John but also John's the one that was his uh, forerunner. John's the one who baptized him. There, there was a, a special relationship there. And, and, and Jesus is going to be heartbroken by that. So there is this element of sorrow within the group. You also need to remember some of Jesus' original disciples came from John. Some of those guys were disciples of John the Baptist, and they're learning, too, of John's death. So I'm certain... It's affecting them in a very painful way. So not only are they, have they had this evangelistic campaign they just came back from, but now they're coming back and receiving news that, that John's been executed, and there's probably a great amount of grief within the group. And so this retreat isn't just to rest from their work. It's probably also a retreat for them to recover from the pain of their, the loss of John. So all these, these things are the, the, pres- are the uh, precursor to Jesus saying, let's go away for a while, which is what their aim is to do when this miracle comes into play. It's also worth pointing out that this miracle, actually we can, we can tell what time of year it was, what season it was when this miracle occurred. We know that this miracle occurred in the spring. We know this for a couple of reasons. Mark chapter 6 and verse 39 says that green grass was present where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. We're we're given an environmental clue as to the time of year that this is happening. And in that region, green grass meant that we're in the springtime. But there's an even better clue given in John's gospel. John chapter 6 and verse 4 says that the Passover was at hand. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same weekend as the Passover. It just means that it's approaching. Passover is soon. And the, pa- time, the time of year that the Passover always took place was the spring. We kind of have it associated with a poorly named day of the year that is called Easter in our terminology, which is a um, improper impro- name for that particular time of year because Easter is a pagan name, but the day of Christ's resurrection that Easter is associated with is based typically on when the Jewish Passover takes place, because if you recall, Jesus died at Passover. So we're approaching that time of the year, and based on where in the life of Jesus we are and how many events have happened thus far and the events that still are to come, following the feeding of the 5,000 up until Jesus' death, most scholars believe we're about one year away from Jesus' death at this point, that this is the last Passover season before his death, uh, before the one during which he he dies. So we can kind of uh, estimate that the feeding of the 5,000 is an event taking place about one year before the death of Jesus, because it's happening around the time of Passover, and this is the last Passover mentioned in the Gospels prior to the Passover at which Jesus died. So this miracle occurred in the spring, or during the spring, around the time of Passover. Green grass serves as an extra indicator of that. The other thing you need to know is that this miracle occurred—I'm not keeping up with this— this miracle occurred before Peter's confession. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, that's the most uh, famous uh, account of, G- of Peter's confession. What I'm talking about is that occasion where Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, with, with the uh, the ones who would, the apostles in particular, and he says, who, who do the people say I am? And they give the answers, and then he goes, Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up with this beautiful confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's when Jesus responds, uh, upon this rock I will build my church in reference to the confession that was made. So all that occurs, but it occurs after this miracle. I point that out because I think this, this particular miracle is significant in the declaration of Jesus' identity as the Christ, as the Messiah. And, and I think it's going to serve as a catalyst for confirming, at the very least, to the apostles and to others that Jesus is the Son of God. It's going to help build that ability to make that confession, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But I share all that with you to help set up the context of when this occurs, because it kind of helps to know, hey, there's a reason Jesus is saying, let's go away by ourselves for a while. And it helps to know that this this whole magnificent event assists the disciples in going, yes, he is the son of the living God. All that, I think, plays... and, And to know that this particular event is occurring about a year before his death. So I wanted to provide that here on the front end. Before we go any further, though, I do want to read these texts. Now, this will take a little bit of time because this miracle occurs in all four Gospels. It is the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. That gives it a uniqueness, a significance. This feeding of the 5,000, the one miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all share, not counting the resurrection. Let me put it that way. So there's something special about it. There's a reason this one, gets res- this one makes it into all four accounts. And so what I want to do tonight, since it's the one miracle we have in all four accounts, we're going to read all four accounts. So you're going to have to bear with me for just a moment. We're going to start with Matthews. You'll find his recorded in chapter 14, between verses 13 through 21. As we read these, I want you to pay attention to the best of your ability and, and notice the similarities and differences between the telling of the stories As best you can because there are some there's consistencies between all four and there's some unique differences between all four as well see if you can spot them because we're going to talk about that in just a moment Matthew chapter 14 beginning in verse 13 now when Jesus heard this he withdrew from there and the heard this is a reference to John's death when Jesus heard this he withdrew from, from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself but when the crowds heard it they followed him on foot from the towns When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now let's go to Mark's account, chapter six of Mark, verses thirty through forty-three. we 5,000 men. Luke's account in chapter 9 of Luke, verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. And finally, let's look at John's gospel, John chapter 6, the first 15 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we just had four accounts of the same miracle. And the one question I have is, who's going to eat those leftovers after they had been in everybody's mouth, you know? Now, that's not seriously the question I have, but it does make me ponder a little bit. What I want to do tonight here at the outset is this. Oftentimes, people cite Bible contradictions. Here we are with one story told in four different Gospels. And if you pick this apart, you could easily say these stories contradict each other. Let me show you, if we wanted to really pick this apart, what somebody might say, noting these six Gospel differences, these six differences between the Gospels, I should say. First is, did Jesus retreat by himself or with the apostles? Because Matthew indicates that Jesus withdrew to a desolate place by himself, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Meanwhile, Mark indicates that Jesus invited the apostles to withdraw with him, saying, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And then Luke indicates that Jesus took the apostles and withdrew with them, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. So did Jesus go by himself? Did he send the disciples by themselves, or did he go with them? Or What about this question? Was the retreat to a desolate place or to a town called Bethsaida? Because Matthew and Mark indicate that it was a desolate place. Luke indicates that it was to a town called Bethsaida. Luke chapter 9 and verse 10. Now Matthew, Mark, and John all indicate that the location was arrived at by boat. So is it a desolate place or a populated place? Now we... Should conclude that they were in a desolate place near Bethsaida because Luke chapter 9, verse 12 acknowledges that despite withdrawing to the town of Bethsaida, they were in fact in a desolate place when the miracle occurred. And in Mark, Bethsaida is mentioned right after this story. It's not mentioned in the context, it's not mentioned specifically in. Uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, Bethsaida does get mentioned. So it's this one seems, okay, you can deal with this one. Jesus went to the vicinity of Bethsaida, and they found a desolate place outside of Bethsaida. But if you really want to pick it apart, somebody could pose that question. Here's another one. Did the disciples initiate the conversation about food for the crowd, or did Jesus... Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that the apostles initiated the conversation when they realized that it was growing late, and they said something like, Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But John indicates that Jesus initiated this conversation when he saw that a large crowd was coming toward him, and he said to the disciples, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Who initiated the conversation? Does it matter? But then if you really want to pick this apart, you could also pose this question. Did the disciples have the food or did they find the food? Because Matthew and Luke make it sound like the food was in the possession of the disciples. After Jesus said, you give them something to eat, they responded, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Matthew 14, Luke 9. But Mark indicates that the disciples were sent to find out how much food was presently available. Mark chapter 6 and verse 38 indicates that Jesus said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Then adds that when they had found out, to indica- indicating that they had gone out and searched, they said five and two fish. But John's account is the more specific one. It says that the loaves and fish were found in the possession of a boy. But that's the only gospel that mentions the boy. So did the disciples have the food in their possession, or did they find the food in the possession of somebody else? Well, we can just assume that in the context of the storytelling by Matthew and Luke in particular, they just didn't feel like they needed to include the detail of how the food was brought into the possession of the disciples. They just kind of skipped that detail, while Mark and John felt the need to give the indication that they had to find it among the crowd. Another question uh, that would criticize this, the consistency of the, the narrative between these Gospels would be this. Were the people seated in groups of hundreds and fifties or just fifties? because Matthew and John don't specify any group sizes. Mark says they sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Luke only mentions groups of about 50. Is that really a contradiction? Can, can, you, can you just mention the fifties and still get the hundreds? Do you have to mention both? Not, not a big contradiction there. And finally, a sixth thing that People might say, well, is, was the food distributed by the disciples or by Jesus? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that Jesus gave the pieces to the disciples for them to distribute to the crowds. Meanwhile, John indicates that Jesus distributed the food directly to the crowd. It says he distributed the food to those who were seated, bypassing the disciples. Well, in John's gospel, he's probably just omitting... Uh, the transfer from Jesus to the disciples to get to the point that the food went from Jesus to the people. They're not real contradictions, but for someone who wants to discredit the Bible, they would make a big deal out of all these. And I probably and and I know I didn't cite every difference that exists between these accounts. I just picked out six that I could make this point with. See, here's the thing. If If four of us in this room witnessed the same event, would we not have a different way of telling about it? We could all witness the very same thing in this room. How many of us watched the 9-11 attacks on TV? And there may even be some in here who were in New York City when it happened. I don't know. And and that memory is seared in our minds, and we could sit down and give a rendition of it ourselves, and there would be details that would be omitted by some and added by others. We would have the same basic story structure, though. We would all be able to talk about the fact that there were two planes that hit the Twin Towers in New York City. One hit one tower first, the other hit the other tower first. We might even get confused, and one of us say that the North Tower got hit first and the South Tower got hit second, and, and somebody else says the South Tower got hit first and the North Tower got hit second. We could, we could have some variations like that, but we would have the same consistent story that there were two different planes that hit the two towers, and then we would throw in the plane that hit the, hit, um, the Pentagon, and we throw in the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. We could get the, those de- some of those uh, specifics right, but we might get some other minor details incorrect between us. Here's the thing, you've got four gospel writers. You've got two that were eyewitnesses of those gospel writers. A third who's uh, recording more than likely the memories of another eyewitness. Mark was likely writing Peter's uh, memories of what happened. Luke researched, probably spoke with some eyewitnesses, but he himself was not one. And they're compiling a story using their own unique languages, inspired by the Spirit, but using their own, uh, their own specific languages and, and terminologies. I don't speak the same way that Ben Hogan speaks when he teaches. We have different words we use. We have different uh, metaphors we use. We have, we have different um, uh, idioms that we use, all that. But we can still get to the same point. So let me show you the similarities between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they have have the same structure. And this is how you defend against a criticism that there are contradictions in in a situation like this. Notice first, Jesus relocated. They all agree on the fact that Jesus relocated. According to Matthew, Jesus withdrew from where he was to a desolate place. Mark, he went away to a desolate place. Luke, says that Jesus withdrew to Bethsaida. John says Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They might have a specific detail different, but they all agree Jesus relocated from one spot to another. They all agree that a crowd followed Jesus. The crowd, uh, when the crowds heard that Jesus withdrew, they followed him on foot from the towns, according to Matthew. Mark says that many saw the, them, Jesus and the disciples, going, recognized them and ran to where they were, were going on foot, Luke says when the crowds learned that Jesus and the apostles withdrew, they followed him. And John says Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, then saw a large crowd was coming toward him. How the crowd got there, how the crowd knew Jesus went somewhere, that that specific information varies between the Gospels, but the same detail, they all followed Jesus. There was a crowd following Jesus is retained in all of the stories. Also notice... Every one of the accounts talks about the need of this crowd to eat. Every account talks about the fact that at the end of the day, there's a recognition that these people need food. And all the accounts agree that the source of the food was five loaves and two fish. There's never a variation in those numbers. There's never a variation in what substances are present. It's always loaves. It's always fish. Now John will tell us it's barley loaves. It's not wheat loaves. John tells us specifically what kind of bread it is. So we're given a little bit more information by John, but everybody agrees. Five and two loaves and fish. You know what's unique about the, the, the food that's being used here? It's poor man's food. Barley loaves were the loaves for the everyday person. That was the... the cheaper product. And the fish here are probably more, probably the tiny fish that are swimming out in the Sea of Galilee comparable to sardines. Not, 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 they, they didn't go out there and catch a big old catfish and fry it up, but that does sound good, doesn't it? These are small fish. These aren't big fish. They're, they're the poor man's meal. You know what fascinates me about that? Jesus is going to provide a buffet for these people. But it's not a buffet of caviar. Jesus promises to provide for our needs, not our wants. He's not throwing filet mignon out there, but he is providing enough sustenance for them to all be satisfied at the end. We need to be careful to assume that Jesus... Is going to supply all of our wants. We need to understand that there's a difference between needs and wants, and Jesus is the one here providing for needs. The stories also indicate that Jesus seated the people. In every story, Jesus is seating the people. One account's gonna say in hundreds and fifties, one's gonna say fifties. Two of them aren't even gonna mention the, the size of the groups. But they all mention that they had to sit down in groups and that it was ordered by Jesus. And if you look at all the accounts, they also agree in the fact that Jesus blessed the food. All four accounts mention Jesus blessing the food or giving thanks for the food. Like that specific detail is not overlooked in a single one of our accounts. See, the structure is retained. And then we can also, in all four accounts, see that the people ate until they were filled or satisfied. They, they ate till they didn't want any more. They didn't have to stop eating. They didn't run out. And all four accounts agree with that. All four accounts also talk about the leftovers. All four accounts tell us that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The numbers in this story never change. None of the gospels ever said there were no. It wasn't 12. It was 13. It was a baker's dozen. None of them ever say. None of them ever changed that number. And they all get this, this other number correct too. The number of men. Now, we're told, uh, I think it's Matthew's gospel that says it was, it, it was men, not counting the women, and ch- or, or just, blah, blah. hold on, let me say that more correctly. Matthew's account is the one who says 5,000 men besides women and children. He's the only one that, that, said, that mentions that there could have been more. But they all agree, f- at a minimum, there's 5,000 men. There could be more, but at a minimum, 5,000 men you see the same basic structure exists in all four, all four accounts. Right there, that tells you you don't have contradiction because the basic premise of the story stays the same in all four accounts. And I didn't even mention all the examples that are consistent. So, so when you're dealing with somebody who alleges contradiction on a story like this, you just got to point out how the story structure stays the same. Just like if if four of us were trying to tell a story of something we witnessed, we're going to have little details different, and maybe even at times have some of the little minor details wrong, but we're going to have the same basic structure of the story. So I I thought that could be beneficial for you if you are uh, dealing with people who want to allege contradictions in the Bible. I think this is one of the best stories to demonstrate how there's consistency in Scripture because you have it from four different authors, and yet they have the same structure. So I wanted to throw that out there. Uh, this evening in our time now I want to spend the bulk of our time here at the end focusing on what this miracle teaches us about Jesus because that's the big thing we could I could spend a lot of time here going through the details of the story uh, talking about why Jesus chose the cinnamon groups or or what's significant about the, the the substances that were used or we could spend a lot of time on the details uh, we could spend multiple classes on this story, but I'm kind of c- cutting to the point tonight, just getting straight to it. Because I think that's the significant thing about this story is what it teaches us about Jesus. And the first thing I want to mention this evening is that this miracle demonstrates Jesus' compassion for people. Now, we've mentioned this before in our ongoing study of Jesus' life, but I want you to think in the context of this story how, imp- how, how significant Jesus' compassion comes to light. Now that word compassion in Scripture, as far as I understand, it's really only ever used in relation to Jesus. Whether it's about Jesus or used by Jesus in his own words, compassion is a characteristic uniquely linked to Jesus in Scripture. And oftentimes when we think of compassion, we kind of lean towards the idea of pity. Compassion is not pity per se. It may include pity, but it's not pity specifically. Because compassion, compassion is that, that feeling of sorrow for somebody, that feeling uh, of pity, but nuanced by the willingness to do something about it. Compassion isn't just, I feel sorry for you, it's, I feel sorry for you, and I'm going to help you. That's what Jesus does here. He sees this crowd and he has compassion on them. He hurts for them. And he's not just satisfied with feeling bad for them. No, he's going to do something about it. But you know, his compassion sh- shows through from the very first moments of the story. Because what was Jesus and the disciples initially going to do when this story began? Go rest. You remember, one of the accounts tells us that they didn't even have leisure to eat because there were so many people around them. So they were going to get away. They were going on a retreat. They were going to go rest. They were probably going to go deal with some grief. And they were probably going to go try to recuperate energy because they hadn't even been able to have a meal. Isn't that interesting? They haven't been able to eat. And by the end of the story, everybody's eating until they're full. Here's Jesus trying to separate with his... His, uh, his group, for a little bit of time for themselves. And it gets interrupted. Interrupted by a crowd. But not just a small crowd, not just a little crowd, a crowd of 5,000 plus. That's very interesting because the towns in the Gal- this region around the Sea of Galilee weren't usually more than a couple thousand, 3,000 people in a town. And now we're talking about a crowd that could easily, easily be estimated up to 10,000 people. From the simple fact that you have 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And if you had spouses, I mean, and let's be honest, when you count men, we're counting, I think it's 21 and older according to the book of Numbers in the way they counted back then. So you have two decades worth of young boys not even counted among those men. And, and in addition to all the women, and let's be honest, we can read about a lot of women who follow Jesus. So there could be more women in this crowd than there were men, but so when you tack on the women and children, it's easy to double that number. That's a big crowd, especially when the nearby towns only have two to three thousand people in them. It's a big crowd. So your interruption here, it's not just like running into somebody at the mall. This is a massive block of people that can't be ignored. You can ignore somebody at the mall. You can't ignore this group. And here's what's beautiful about Jesus He's trying to have alone time with His disciples. And this massive crowd shows up, but He doesn't get irritated, He doesn't get upset. He doesn't lash out at them or express any form of anger towards them for having interrupted his retreat. Luke chapter 9 and verse 11 says he welcomed them. There's something beautiful there. That in this moment when Jesus has a plan, when Jesus has an objective, when Jesus is trying to accomplish something specific and people interrupted that, welcome. That's hospitality, is it not? That's the definition of being hospitable. One of the the terms that we don't talk about much in the church, but yet it's one of the qualifications of an elder? Jesus is modeling that in its truest form here. Because when the crowd showed up and interrupted his planned retreat, he didn't respond with hostility. He responded with hospitality. And his his compassion gets demonstrated also in the fact that, think about this. When he was in the wilderness, when he was in a desolate place by himself, being tempted by the devil for 40 days, he didn't use his miraculous ability to satisfy his own hunger. But when he was in this desolate place, with this crowd, with all these people, He was more than willing to use his miraculous ability to satisfy their hunger. He didn't didn't do it for himself, but he would do it for other people because of his compassion. He would do something for others that he wouldn't even do for himself because he cared that much about them. That little piece of information that comes from this story should amplify our appreciation of what happens at Calvary because he didn't do that for himself. He didn't have to do that for himself because he never sinned. He did that for us because he cared about us that much. So this particular miracle, one year removed from his death, really demonstrates just how much he cares about you and I. And that's only going to get amplified one year later. So I think it's important to note how this miracle demonstrates his compassion. I also alluded to this earlier, but this miracle identifies Jesus as the Messiah in a very bold and big way. Now, you and I might not pick up on this as easily, but no miracle highlights his Messiahship better than this one. And it's evident when you start considering the fact that there are numerous parallels between the feeding of the 5,000 and the exodus. Let me share a few of those with you. Think in terms of location for a moment. This miracle occurred in a desolate place, we're told. The fact that the location of this miracle was desolate highlights the fact that there was no immediate source of sustenance. Jesus isn't out there uh, feeding them with all the bounty of the land around him. No, it's divine. And that small detail exists to show us that Jesus wasn't relying on natural resources. He was revi- relying on divine power. Much like happened as the Israelites journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. And manna rained down from heaven every morning. Quell was present every day. Water poured out of rocks. There was divine intervention to provide for the sustenance of the people as they journeyed from Egypt to Canaan. Here they are in a desolate place, and and, and during the exodus, during the wilderness wanderings, they were in a desolate place, and Jesus is providing for them just like God provided for the Israelites back then. The location of this miracle is reminiscent of the exodus. But there's also a comparison that Jesus makes, a statement he makes that compares the people, a metaphor he uses that is reminiscent of the Exodus as well. It's in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34. Jesus looks at the crowd, has compassion on them, and says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you and I usually frame that in the context of, the parable of the lost sheep, or we frame it in the context of Jesus saying, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd. We frame it in the context of the teachings of Jesus. But that observation about the crowd that's out in front of him, it recalls Moses' description of Israel back in the book of Numbers. It's in Numbers chapter 27, and verse 17, when Moses requested that God appoint a replacement for him once he passed. Here's what Moses said. He said, Let the Lord, this is Numbers chapter 27 at the end of verse 16, Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. My point is, Jesus is quoting Moses in this scenario. And, And he's identifying the crowd that's before him, in the same way that Moses identified the Israelites that he was leading to Canaan. Jesus is using the same terminology, the same metaphor. That comparison that he's using came from Moses and is a comparison related to the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. And so the comparison that's used here is another indicator of how this parallels the Exodus. But I also find it interesting how Jesus organized them. Groups of hundreds, fifties. You know, we're never explained in the text why he did that. It's never said, this is why Jesus put them in these groups. Oh, these are special numbers. You got to have them in these numbers. You want to do a miracle, they got to be in groups of fifties and hundreds. No, there's no explanation like that. But it's interesting because Jesus uses this organizational strategy And that organization of the groups for the disbursement of foods recalls the organization of Israel. You go back to Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21. Moses' father-in-law Jethro observed how Moses was burdened with the responsibility of judging the people and he made a suggestion to Moses. He told Moses to look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. Place such men over the the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Now, this is a very minor uh, parallel. But imagine that you're a Jewish person in the first century, familiar with the stories in the Old Testament that have been recounted time and time again. And you're sitting down on that grass, you just got put in your group over here, Maybe you start sitting there counting, we got, we got 50 in this group. That group's got 100. I mean, I've, I've heard those numbers somewhere before. Might they not recall this story from the midst of the Exodus where Moses is encouraged to utilize such an organizational strategy to help guide and deal with the, the challenges of the Israelites and make a comparison? That organization lends itself to a parallel as well. And finally, there's also the substance involved. When it came time for the people to eat, Mark chapter 6, verse 41 and 42 tells us that Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. In the wilderness, the Israelites were fed manna, which Moses called the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 15. And we're told that every morning... Every morning, the Israelites gathered as much as he could eat. The bread Jesus broke that day never ran out. There was was leftovers, and everybody ate as much as he could. And when that manna fell on the ground during the the, uh, um, wilderness wandering, every morning they gathered up as much as they could eat. They never were unsatisfied with how much they got certain that wouldn't be lost on a first-century Jewish person either. Here's my point. All of these parallels can be easy for us to miss, but a first-century Jew who has been waiting for the Lord to raise up a prophet like Moses according to the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 would more than likely have made a connection. And they did. Because if you read John chapter 6 and verse 15, they wanted to come and take Jesus by force to make him king they got it they made the connection jesus didn't let them come and take him and make him king he got out of there but that doesn't mean he didn't accomplish his ultimate goal he revealed himself in a very simple way as the one fulfilling the prophecy of being another prophet like moses I think that's why, shortly thereafter, you're going to, this story is recorded in Matthew chapter 14. You jump over to Matthew chapter 16, just two chapters later, and Peter is proclaiming that, Christ is, that Jesus is the, the Son of God. I think this is a big story that helps move that needle in the understanding of the identity of Jesus because of these parallels with the Exodus. We might not catch that, but they certainly did because they wanted to make him king. All of Jesus' miracles were intended to reveal his messiahship in some fashion. This one may have been more evident to a first century audience than we recognize. One final thing I want you to notice from this story is that this miracle foreshadows the assignment of disciples. One of the more interesting facets of this miracle to me is what Jesus told his apostles to do after they realized the need for the crowd to eat. The apostles suggested that Jesus disperse the crowd so they can go find food, but Jesus responded, you give them something to eat. Jesus put the responsibility of taking care of the needs of these people on his disciples. Now Jesus knew, as John tells us, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he didn't, he didn't say, I got this. When they came to him and said, hey, these people need food, send them away. Jesus didn't go, no problem, I got it, under control. He said, you give them something to eat. He put the responsibility on the disciples initially. And they went to work. They tried to find something to eat. They, they couldn't. Now, because John chapter 6 and verse 6 tells us that uh, Jesus was testing the apostles because he knew what he was going to do, it's easy for us to demiss- dismiss this instruction as something pre-planned, as, as if Jesus involved the disciples, put their responsibility on them, just so that he, it would be evident that this dilemma was beyond the scope of their ability, of mankind's ability to resolve. And so when he resolved it, it would be evident to all that he was not just a man. That, now that's quite possible, but I don't think Jesus said, you give them something to eat because he wanted to show them that they couldn't. I think Jesus said, you give them something to eat because after he was gone, he intended for them to become the agents through whom such needs would be met. Think about some of the instructions Jesus gave his followers during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42, he said, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, he said, Sell your possessions, give to the needy. And then went on to equate, Benevolent activity as a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. See, I believe Jesus was educating his apostles here, educating them on the responsibility they have to meet the needs of others. Because when you get to the book of Acts, that's exactly what they do. The question is, do we we carry forward that same understanding of responsibility? Do we continue meeting those needs of people? Do we continue the pattern of feed, feeding the 5,000? Not miraculously, but addressing those needs out of compassion and hospitality. I think there's a message in this miracle for you and me regarding our responsibility as Christ's disciples and as his agents in the world today. I love the feeding of the 5,000. Every time I visit it, there's something more to learn, more to grasp, more to gain. I hope it's the same for you. That ultimately concludes everything I wanted to talk about tonight. We do have a few minutes left, so let me pause and do something I don't normally do. Do you have any questions? Debates? Arguments, ridicules, observations. I'll take it all. Kurt.
1: our problem is we don't have
0: Jesus telling us to come sit (laughs) if Jesus came and said all right I need y'all come forward sit together so we can sing it'd be a little different Yeah. yeah yeah he was that that is a worthwhile observation that Jesus was organized and one thing I didn't talk about I meant to talk about this is that is a reflection of his father you think back to the creation account God was interrupting chaos with order. He was putting together this universe in an organized systematic way. He is not a god of chaos. He is not a god of confusion. He is a god of order. And here in this moment, Jesus is reflecting his father. A great observation Mike. Similarly I, th- I don't think it specifies a- the apostles. I don't recall it specifying just the apostles. So it could have been more. Yeah. 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 And what, what's very interesting to me about this miracle is if, if I could witness any miracle, this, m- this might actually be the one I want to see. I want to see, as he broke it, how it multiplied. Because I, I just can't, he just did that piece he tore off, just keep replacing? How did that work? I don't get it. Like that's a, I would love to see walking on water, but I've seen a magician recreate that. Of course, he didn't do it the way Jesus did it, but I've, I've seen an illusionist try to recre- How do you, rec- how, how, how does it just keep multiplying? That's beyond my comprehension. I, I'm, I'm amazed by that. That's the miracle I think I'd want to try to witness. I'd, I, I would want to be there, like, like if you're sitting there with a magician who's doing card tricks right in front of you, you're wanting to try to figure out how's his hands moving, where's he hiding that? I'd want to be doing that, looking at Jesus' hands and just seeing how this multiplies. Because it's beyond, beyond comprehension. Any other thoughts or comments before we wrap up tonight? Well, thank you for your continued participation in this class. I will not be here next week, um, but uh, Brother Mike Gifford has agreed to to fill in, and uh, he's going to uh, take us on the very next event in the life of Jesus, the event that immediately follows this, uh, the walking on water. So he'll have the joy of talking about that one next week. So I hope you'll come back and join us for that study, and we will be continuing the study through the spring quarter. Uh, Hopefully we can get through Jesus' resurrection before summer gets here. So let's close out with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we are humbled and amazed whenever we look at the life of your son. Because every time we open your word and and examine his life, we're just reminded of how glorious he is. We thank you for sending him and for setting an example that we can learn from and and, and for, for demonstrating the characteristics of you that we need to emulate. And Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be more like him. And Lord, as we go through this life as as your children, as members of your church, help us to be the agents of good in this world that you intend for us to be. Help us to have the compassion of Christ, the hospitality of Christ, the concern for others that he demonstrated. Lord, Thank you most of all for having the compassion to save us. And we never take for granted what Jesus did on the cross. And it's through His name that we offer. This-